The Adoration of the Magi Andrea Mantegna Painted about 1500 Distemper, that is, pigments in animal glue, on linen, 19 and 1 8 inches high by 27 and 5 8 inches wide. The head and shoulders of five adults and the infant Jesus held in Mary's arms huddle within this dark, flat-toned painting. In the lower right quadrant is the bald head of a white-bearded man with furrowed brow and grimmest face, who extends a blue and white porcelain cup as he hunches over, a spotted brown fur collar draped over his embroidered white robe. Close behind him, in the upper right quadrant, is a black moor in a leopard-skin turban trimmed with orange cloth. From his ears dangle long pendants of pearls and metal discs on fine gold chains, reaching the collar of his blue blouse and the shoulders of his dark green cloak. He is open-mouthed, with his upper teeth and tongue showing, as if astonished, while he clutches a lidded urn figured with swirls of beige and brown that suggest stone. Nearest the center of the painting Behind the bald-headed figure is a man of about forty with a soft brown beard, contemplative features, and eyes staring serenely forward. His white turban is surmounted by a worn reddish fez, and his robe is scarlet with fur lapels the color of his beard. In his right hand he extends a red vessel in the form of a flattened globe, with a turned wooden base and a silver bell-shaped cap. Just to the left and slightly above, the Christ child's gaze is arrested by this reddish object, which appears to be lit from within. His swaddling, coming undone, so that one bare shoulder and arm and two naked feet stick out of the grayish-white linen, he leans forward, held aloft by his mother, and gestures with his right hand. Mary also inclines her head toward the glowing central object, but her smooth features and close-lidded eyes betray no emotion. She wears a golden-yellow cloth headdress that drapes around her neck to become a scarf, a faded red peasant's blouse bordered with black, and a plain dark robe. In contrast to her youthful appearance, an aged Joseph is behind her right shoulder at the extreme left of the painting. He wears a close-fitting scarlet laborer's cap. His eyes are wrinkled. His silver hair and a trim gray beard encircle his round face, gray brows, and Roman nose. Three halos, barely discernible against a featureless black background, appear behind the heads of Joseph, Mary, and the Christ child. The Holy Family, to the left, counterbalance the three kings to the right. At the center of the painting's flat, lusterless surface glows the light from the east. The label reads, In the spirit of Renaissance humanism, Montaigne concentrates on the psychological interactions of the principal actors in this sacred drama. The close-up scheme of half-length figures, set before a neutral background 
and compressed within a shallow space, was created by Montaigne from his study of ancient Roman reliefs. This private, devotional image may have been painted for the Gonzaga family, rulers of Mantua, who employed Montaigne as court painter. Chandelier, French, Paris, about 1818 to 1819. Cherargent Gaul, 1761 to 1844. Glass, enameled metal, gilt bronze. Hanging from the ceiling of this gallery is an ornate and delicate chandelier measuring approximately four feet high by three feet in diameter. Its center is dominated by a celestial blue sphere painted with five-pointed gold stars. Around its circumference is a gilded band decorated with small, detailed signs of the zodiac. From this decorative band spring 18 candle holders. Six of these are in the shape of griffins, creatures with the body of a lion and the head, wings, and claws of an eagle. These six support the top row of candles, just above the gilded band. The remaining twelve candle holders are in the shape of stylized vines that spring from the band, curve down, then sweep up in a trumpet shape to hold the group of candles just below the band. All are symmetrically placed around the sphere. The balloon's gondola is a cut-glass bowl with a gilt bronze ornament around its rim. A small, faceted glass ball is suspended from the bowl. Large and small garlands of glass drops hanging between the gondola and candle holders mimic the ropes of the balloon. The combined materials would have glistened and sparkled in the candlelight. The label reads, The form of this whimsical chandelier was inspired by the hot air balloon. The blue globe with gold stars symbolizes the heavens. The twelve signs of the zodiac encircle it on the gilt bronze band. When Gall first exhibited a chandelier of this model in 1819, he described it as a lustre à poisson, chandelier with fish, because the glass bowl below the globe was intended to hold goldfish swimming in water, whose continuous movement amuses the eye most agreeably. Commode, French, Paris, 1769, by Gilles Joubert, 1689-1775, Royal Cabinet Maker, 1763-1774. Oak, veneered with kingwood, tulip wood, holly, bois satinet, and ebony. Gilt bronze, marble top. This commode is veneered with various woods and set with gilt bronze. It is approximately three feet high, six feet wide, and a little over two feet deep. A pinkish, gray and beige marble with dark red streaks covers the top and is slightly scalloped at the four corners. Below the marble is a band of running scrolls in gilt bronze. The three panels at front and one on each side 
are decorated with a pattern resembling a garden trellis. Light-colored wood is crossed by thin strips of dark wood. At each crossing is placed a small gilt bronze rosette. The four corners of each of the five panels are accented by larger rosettes. Two pairs of gold knob handles are placed on either side of the central panel. At each of the front corners is a female bust of gilt bronze. The commode is supported by four gilt bronze lion's feet. The label reads, Joubert was eighty years old when he delivered this commode to the royal family. It is one of a pair that was installed at Versailles in 1769. They are described in the royal archives under the inventory number 2556, which is also painted on the back of this commode. It was made for the bedroom of Madame Louise of France, one of the daughters of Louis XV. The Coronation of the Virgin Gentile da Fabriano Painted about 1420 Tempera and gold leaf on panel 34 and one-half inches high by 25 and one-half inches wide This golden picture is almost entirely taken up by the symmetrical figures of the seated Christ on the right placing a bejeweled golden crown on the inclined head of the Virgin Mary, who sits on the left, her hands crossed over her chest. Above them, centered in the rays of a golden sunburst, hovers a white dove with gray-tipped wings and bearing a halo. Standing below and beside the figures, three miniature angels are aligned in two vertical rows. The Christ is wearing a medieval-style tunic of gold, gathered at the waist by a narrow golden sash. The garment is embroidered with five-pointed golden stars, surrounded by stars of blue and encircled by red stars. Falling from his shoulders as he raises his arms is a rich burgundy robe, bordered in patterned gold, bearing vines with golden leaves and five-petaled golden flowers, with hearts of blue. The virgin's robe, which he holds close to her, has tightly clustered seven-petaled floral pinwheels of gold over a background of royal blue. Behind the two figures, from their shoulders down, flows a patterned dark green tapestry, reminiscent of Christ's robe, with its five-pointed snowflakes of red and gold. The figures and the background, absent of depth, are laid virtually flat against each other. Standing in the lower corners on either side, the angels, partially obscuring each other in descending columns, look upward toward the figures of Mary and Christ, their lips open in song, their hands holding an unfurled white parchment ribbon with musical notes and Latin words that wind in and out of view. The hands and faces of the principal figures are painted realistically in a grayish pink, making their skin ashen, and their placid, almost expressionless features look otherworldly, in great contrast to the richly tooled golden crown, the embossed halos, and opulent, embellished fabrics. Presiding over all this, Christ's 
uplifted hands in the moment between setting the crown and blessing the Virgin Mary are set against a broad sheet of pure gold that rises behind the figures until it vanishes under a gilded arch of carved leaves supported by spiral columns, an ornately carved wooden frame through which we view the coronation. The label reads, This panel of Christ, crowning his mother, Mary, originally formed the front of a two-sided processional standard carried in religious ceremonies in Gentile's native town of Fabriano. In this shimmering image, Gentile makes effective use of the complex patterning and wealth of surface ornamentation that is characteristic of the international Gothic style and that recalls the rich fabrics woven in Florence. Irises Vincent van Gogh, 1889 Oil on canvas, 28 inches high, by 36 and 5 8 inches wide. In this painting, dozens of irises rise up in waves of color, like green and blue flames fanned by a wind that blows them, now flattens them, toward the left. Carried along on thick brush strokes, it seems as though a wave of motion flows from lower right to upper left, sweeping the shapes of leaves, stems, petals, and blossoms into a wide river of color. It is as if we are plunged into an eye-level crowd of purple, blue, and violet irises. Wherever we look, we are dazzled by a profusion of color. Painted with thick, bold strokes of paint, slender green leaves wind sinuously upward from coarse orange soil. Their colors shift from blue, bordered by green, to a soft aquamarine outlined in heavy blue. This mass of plant forms sway like underwater vegetation in bold oils heavily plastered on canvas. From the heart of each plant, spindly stalks reach even higher than the spears of their leaves before bursting into extravagant blue-purple petals, curling about the yellow and white of the inner flower. On the left, a solitary white iris, its blossom larger than the rest, commands the swirl of purple and green from its outpost. Behind it, where irises no longer rule the field, a throng of marigolds offers saucers of golden fire to the sun, while on the right, a patch of bright green meadow hosts occasionally yellow and white wildflowers and forms a glistening backdrop for the myriad blue heads tossing in the foreground. The label reads, Van Gogh painted irises in the garden of the asylum at Saint-Rémy, where he was recuperating from a severe attack of mental illness. Although he considered it more of a study than a finished picture, it was exhibited at the Salon des Independents in 1889. Irises exemplifies Van Gogh's practice of working directly from life. Its energy and theme, the regenerative powers of the earth, express the artist's deeply personal belief in the divinity of art and nature. Juno Minerva, 
Venus. A set of life-size, freestanding marble sculptures of three mythological goddesses created as a group by one sculptor. Juno, on the far left. Joseph Nollikins, 1776, marble, 54 and three-quarter inches high. The goddess stands erect on a waist-high pedestal, her head bearing a crown and tilted slightly backward with an air of nobility. As she looks toward her left shoulder, she grasps the folds of her thick garment in both hands just below the waist and swings her arms out toward the right as she begins unfastening her dress. Although still clothed, her right breast is bared. Minerva, on the far right. Joseph Nollikins, 1775. Marble, 56 and 11-16 inches high. Minerva stands with her left hand placed on her shield that rests on the ground. A medallion on the shield featuring the carved head of Medusa is just coming into view beneath the folds of her robe. With her right hand, she lifts the visor of her war helmet, revealing her composed face. Her left leg is visible in detail, as though the marble of her garment were transparent. Venus, in the center. Joseph Nollikins, 1773, marble, 48 and 13-16 inches high. Depicted nude, Venus bends forward and glances right while resting against a tree trunk to remove one remaining sandal. Her flesh of milky white marble is smooth, and her limbs are shaped with a soft grace, all in contrast to the wavy pattern of her hair, gnarled texture of the tree trunk, and the intricate detail of the straps of her discarded sandal. The label for all three sculptures reads, These sculptures were made to accompany an antique statue of the shepherd Paris. According to the myth of the judgment of Paris, the shepherd had to declare one of the three goddesses to be the most beautiful. Each figure is shown in a different state of undress. Minerva, goddess of wisdom and warfare, removes her helmet. Juno, goddess of marriage, unfastens her dress, while Venus, goddess of beauty and winner of the contest, is nude except for the one sandal that she is removing. Panathenaic Prize Amphora, storage vessel, with lid. Greek, made in Athens, 363-362 B.C attributed to the painter of the wedding processions and signed by Nicodemus as potter. Terracotta This Greek amphora is nearly three feet in height and a foot in diameter at its widest point. With the exception of touches of white paint, two tones predominate, a red-orange terracotta, the clay from which the vase is made, and black-painted decoration. The vessel's body resembles an elongated turnip with a disc-shaped foot. 
Its shoulder tapers sharply inward, leading to a slender neck patterned with delicate lines and a slightly flared opening. Two handles spring straight up from the base of the neck and curve inward to join the top of the neck where it begins to flare outward to form the opening. This flared opening and the lid are solid black. The lid's black knob resembles a large teardrop. Two panels on the body of the amphora, each about a foot in height, contain painted scenes. On the front is the goddess Athena, with white face and arms, standing and wearing a helmet and carrying a shield. She is flanked by two columns, each topped with the goddess Nike. Painted on the back is a more elaborate scene with four standing figures. At left, two boxers, identified by their nude, muscular bodies and the leather straps they hold. To their left is Nike, the winged goddess of victory, wearing a flowing, sleeveless dress. She crowns the winner, while at the extreme right is an older, bearded and bare-chested man, the judge of the contest, who seems to be pointing to the winner with his right hand. Although the figures appear flat, depth and detail are alluded to through thin white lines that denote facial features, musculature, and fabric folds. The label reads, The reverse of a prize amphora was customarily decorated with an image of the athletic contest for which the vase was awarded. Nike, goddess of victory, crowns a victorious boxer who holds a long strip of leather. When wrapped around the athlete's hand and wrist, this strip served as his boxing glove. At the left stands his defeated opponent folding a leather thong in his hands. The bearded man at the right is the event's judge. Ensemble of Jewelry Greek from Egypt, 220 to 100 B.C. In a display case in a darkened room, gold jewelry gleams with a brilliance that belies its age. These pieces were probably made in Alexandria, Egypt, when it was under the rule of the Greeks, and so the design of the jewelry is Greek, not Egyptian. The label reads, This jewelry surely was the prized possession of a woman of high rank. The pieces may have been made by goldsmiths in Alexandria, Egypt. Signs of repair show that they were actually worn and not made for dedication. Installed in the display case are pairs of armlets and bracelets made of gold, hairnet made of gold, garnets, and glass paste, rings made of gold and carnelian, a diadem made of gold, garnet, carnelian, glass paste, bone or pearl, and moonstone, and other assorted jewelry. There is a seven-inch long chain of twelve golden beads shaped like cowrie shells. Nearby it is a necklace of twenty-eight beads of emerald, carnelian, 
amethyst, and gold. Two pairs of gold oval hoop earrings, nearly one inch high, are embellished with antelope heads. The eyes would have been filled with tiny gems. The hoops have been wrapped with a smooth gold wire. Finally, a pair of gold pendant earrings have winged eros figures hanging like mini sculptures from stylized rosettes. The pair of snake armlets are each worn around the upper arm and measure three inches in diameter. Above them are a pair of bracelets for the wrist, measuring two inches in diameter. Both pairs fasten with a copper pin at the back, but they differ in that the armlets are made in the form of a single coiled snake, while the bracelets are formed from two coiled snakes. The label reads, As early as the 500s B.C., bracelets and armlets in the shape of coiled snakes were quite popular in Egypt. They were worn in pairs. The bracelets shown here each consist of two snakes. The armlets are fashioned as single snakes. The next piece is a gold hairnet, measuring about eight inches long with its tassel and three inches wide. It covered a bun at the back of a woman's head and is elaborately decorated with chains, filigree, and spool-shaped and garnet beads. The net itself is of spool beads and cross chains accented with tiny masks of the god Dionysus. Its medallion contains a bust of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, in high relief. Her son, Eros, is a winged baby perched on her left shoulder. The label reads, This intricate piece was worn over a bun on the back of the head. The roundel depicts Aphrodite, goddess of love, and her son Eros. Although Aphrodite is a goddess, the portrait-like features of the face suggest that the woman represented may actually be Arsinoe third. Queen of Egypt, reigned 217 to 205 or 4 B.C. Next, there are two gold rings, inset with carnelian gems. A figure of a goddess has been carved into the surface of each gem. One depicts Artemis, the goddess of the hunt, and the other, the goddess of fortune. Both gems are oval in shape, and about two inches long. The label reads, Each ring is set with a gem engraved with a mythological figure. One depicts Artemis, goddess of the hunt, with a deer. The other represents Tyche, goddess of good fortune, with a staff and a double cornucopia, a symbol of the Ptolemaic queens. Next is a gold diadem, measuring nearly seven inches in diameter. It is decorated with tassels of delicate chains that end in gemstone beads. These would have dangled on the wearer's forehead and temples. The label reads, This diadem encircled the forehead. The tassels, embellished with beads, hung down in front. The long elements that decorate each side of the diadem are hard to identify. They may be torches 
whose flames are formed of twisted wire. In the center is a Heracles, or square knot, that was originally inlaid with garnets. Venus and Adonis Titian, also known as Tiziano Vecellio, and Workshop, about 1555 to 1560. Oil on canvas, 63 inches high by 77 and 3 eighth inches wide. This painting, as tall as an average person and as wide as a seven-foot couch, fills an entire wall in its massive one-foot-wide frame. It is a dynamic woodland scene of a hunter in full stride tearing himself away from the last embraces of his beloved, as his dogs impatiently sniff the air and strain at their leashes, while Cupid slumbers on a hillside in the background. Their figures dominate the expanse of the painting. A boyish, curly-headed, muscular Adonis is at center. His upper lip bears the first downy shadow of a mustache. His feet are bare, his strong calves are attired in leggings of animal hide, and a quiver is strapped across his half-bare chest where the draperies of a rose-and-white tunic have been torn open. His right hand is extended behind him, clutching a six-foot spear, as one would hold a walking stick. His muscular left arm restrains three animated wolfhounds whose leashes are curled around his hand. Two of the three sinewy beasts tug at their leashes. The third, the one closest to us, cowers to the left, its tail between its legs. Adonis glances at the nude figure of Venus in the foreground to the left of center. Her blonde hair braided tightly about her head with strings of pearls, she gazes into Adonis's face. Her lips are parted, the whites of her eyes bulging. Seated on maroon velvet draperies with her back toward us, her bent legs are extended to the left while she twists her body to the right and thrusts her arms around Adonis's chest like an anchor, as though to restrain him but his rosy cheeks are placid and composed, his stride uninterrupted. Beside the couch, in the lower left corner, a golden chalice has been dashed to the ground. The blue sky directly behind Adonis gives way to storm clouds in the direction he's heading, and in the midst of those brown and black clouds, at an apex from which sunlight bursts through and streams to earth, we discern the small, hazy silhouette of a human figure. The god Zeus, perhaps. We don't know for certain. The label reads, In this scene from an ancient myth, Titian shows the goddess Venus attempting to restrain her lover Adonis as he sets off to hunt. Ignoring Venus's pleas, Adonis insists upon going, only to be killed by a wild boar. The contrasting poses of the figures, profundity of their expressions, richness of color, and exquisite brushwork are hallmarks of Titian's influential style.
a view of the Grand Canal, Santa Maria della Salute and the Dogana from Campo Santa Maria Zobenigo. Bernardo Bellotto, about 1740. Oil on canvas, 53 and one quarter inches high by 91 and one quarter inches wide. A panoramic view of activity on Venice's Grand Canal unfolds on a canvas stretching along an entire wall, eight feet across and more than four feet high. It is a sunny afternoon. An almost cloudless blue sky hovers above the distant view of a bay where gondolas cluster about a tall-masted sailing ship at anchor. A broad, placid canal, punctuated with river traffic, winds its way from that harbor into the foreground. On the left bank, the mottled brown facade of a three-story stone house at the water's edge. Its smooth corner blocks glisten in the sun beside rough brickwork exposed by crumbling plaster. Four arched windows, framed by columns, rise double the height of a person on each of two upper floors, their dark shutters closed against the brilliant light. A bare-shouldered young woman in a red gown rests her forearms on a second-floor balcony, gazing out on the canal. Below, two men stand in conversation on the pavement before the house, and nearby, a woman, wrapped in a shawl, waits with a little boy at the edge of a boat slip as three gondoliers glide toward her. Other gondolas traverse the green and blue waters with passengers and goods. Along the right bank, in the foreground, a narrow lane is in the shadow of a dingy row of houses. Behind them, a monastery rises in the sun. Further along, an open space, the piazza of a Baroque church whose lofty domes and bell tower dart into the sky. Its octagonal roof lines are embellished with dozens of full-length statues. A churchman in red robes and a white skull cap passes a priest on the piazza, near to where the pavement descends by broad steps to a boat landing at the water's edge. Men and women stroll or gather on an adjacent square before a four-story public building made of smooth, sand-colored stone. The canal then passes behind a long, low building where sailing sloops unload their wares. Reflecting all on its barely rippled surface, the canal bends to the right and vanishes behind an array of roofs, steeples, and masts toward the harbor where ships, city, and sky meet. The label reads, Bellotto's precocious talent was fostered in the studio of his uncle, Canaletto. By 1738, only three years after joining the shop, the 17-year-old Bellotto was collaborating with Canaletto as an independent master, which he continued to do until 1742. They produced numerous views of Venice for the tourists stopping there on their grand tour of Europe. This one is known in at least a dozen versions by both artists.